Hey gamers, ad break time. First, I want to remind you all that I now have a Patreon. If you want to support the show, visit patreon.com slash beyondsolitaire. I'd really appreciate it. Second, Beyond Solitaire is proudly sponsored by Central Michigan University's Center for Learning Through Games and Simulations. Right now, their second game, Rising Waters, is live on Kickstarter. If you'd like to play a peer-reviewed historical game and support a press trying to make more of them, definitely check it out. The campaign link is in the show notes. Thanks, and let's get on with the show. Hey, gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire. This week on the plot, I have a very special guest. I got Fred Serval. He is a game designer. You might know him most from Red Flag over Paris, but he's got more stuff coming up. So we should definitely talk about it. How you doing, Fred? I'm doing really well, and I'm super happy to be here. So thanks, Liz, for, for having me. Yeah, I'm super happy to have you on because you're not just a game designer. You're also a YouTuber of the channel Homo Ludanes, which I think we will get to in a moment. But first, tell us about your game. Tell us about Red Flag Over Paris. Well, Red Flag Over Paris is uh, a game that I started thinking about in 2018 uh, and actually did the first viable prototype of in 2019. Uh, and at the time, I was just starting into game design and it was... Um, uh, thanks to a, a friend of mine that I was playing with every week uh, called uh, Brian Asklev, that is also a game designer. And he actually convinced me to reach out to GMT and tell them that I had this prototype. And for me, that sounded insane as an idea. And he said, well, that's not insane. The game is good. You should reach out to them. It's a good idea. And I did. And surprisingly enough, uh, GMT replied within the week and said, yeah, sure. We're super interested. Send the prototype and we'll see how it goes, which sounded absurd to me just the fact that it was that simple um and then i sent a, a better version of my prototype and we had some discussions and decided to add it to p500 in late 2019. Uh, the game was released in december of 2021 uh, so just before just in time to hit the 150 years anniversary of the paris commune because the game is about this the paris commune which is a a socialist insurrection that happened in 1871 in France, uh, specifically in Paris, even if other stuff happened across France also at the time. And it's, uh, it was a consequence of the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 that ended up uh, in the uh, late 1870, but the negotiation for peace uh, was happening at the beginning of 1871. So on the backdrop of the end of the Franco-Prussian War, you had that um, insurrection that happened in Paris. My game is about this. Uh, it was my first design. Uh, and it's uh, it's a rather small, simple game, a uh, card-driven game uh, that draws a lot of uh, inspiration from the structure, from the card play, uh, from two games, 13 Days, and more specifically, even Fort Sumter by Mark Herman. Uh, so those were the two core inspiration for the game, but it expands on it, uh, plays with its core system, creates new ones, um, and adapts a lot of it to the specific event that I was trying to portray. Uh, so this is, yeah, this is Red Flag Over Paris in a, in a nutshell. So what made you choose a socialist insurrection as your first game topic? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I think so. The way I engage with the game, or, and I still do, but I started to do, is that uh, when I was just a player, um, I, what I like to do is get into a topic, find games and find books about it and explore and have that interaction between reading about the topic, watching documentaries and playing games and really have that full interaction with history through different mediums. This is something that I really enjoyed. And at some point I really got interested in the, the Paris Commune and the Franco-Prussian War. And I realized that there were no games on the topic. Um, 
And it was a bit of a frustration and I was reading about it and I was realizing there is not a lot of movies about the Paris Commune. There is no games about it. The number of books are pretty limited. And I was thinking about the fact that even though I'm French, I didn't really learn about it in high school. And I was starting to think, well, what, what's up with that? And how come I know about it? And I realized that there was a difference between popular culture on history of the Paris Commune in France and in the rest of the world. And the fact that it was such an important phenomenon for a specific part of the political spectrum, which is more radical left, um, which is a, a political uh, orientation that I'm, just to be very transparent, pretty close to. So I, I'm, I've been a militant and active on, on, on in radical left uh, organizations. And I was rethinking really about this and I was thinking, well, it's weird. and. I thought, well, there is no games on the topic. What could I do about it? And there is basically two ways. Uh, either you go online and pester designers to make games, and that's usually not a great idea, <laughs> or you can do the game yourself. <laughs> and that's and that's what I decided to do. Uh, so I thought, well, rather than complain about the fact that there are no games on the Paris Commune on forums and Twitter, maybe I should just, you know, um, like get to work and start reading and thinking, well, what could I do uh, if I wanted to change that fact? And that's what I started doing. That's awesome. So you mentioned that you didn't learn much or definitely not enough clearly about this period in history or the press commune in high school. So how did you choose to research this topic and what, what kinds of media did you look, look at and what did you find? Um, so I knew about the events because it's a it's an important uh, event for for the radical left. Uh, it was pivotal for for a lot of organization. And it's something that is being remembered. So I knew about the events, but um, yeah, as I said, I didn't really learn about it in high school. And actually, there is a history behind it that is quite interesting about the history, the historiography, I would say, of the of the press commune and how it is portrayed. Um, and so I basically knew about the events, but I didn't knew that much about how exactly it unfolded. There was a bit this myth about, oh, at that time in 1871, it was the the peak of uh, revolutionary momentum and, and France almost got proto-communist or something like this, which is a pure myth. Uh, but that was this. And I was like, well, I would like to know exactly what happened, who were the uh, the men and women that actually did this, what they had in mind, what were they trying to achieve, what happened to them. Um, and when I, when I started uh, thinking about documenting myself, well, I looked for books. Usually that's the first place that, that I come from, that I, you know, when I do research. And what I like to do is usually start with a simple overarching book that covers the whole event. Uh, and in France, we're really lucky because we have that collection called Cossage, uh, which is a collection that takes a specific topics and covers all of it in very simple uh, words. It's very easy to approach, but it's always written by someone who's like one of the absolute best in that domain, which is like this cool combination of accessible, but also high quality academia. And the Cossage on, on the commune is written by Rougerie, which is probably the best French historian on the, on the Paris commune. And also in those books, you have usually a great bibliography. So from there, you can actually start exploring other books. Uh, and I started reading about uh, other stuff on the military side. Um, I read a book that really struck me a lot that I thought was really great, uh, uh, Robert Tom's The War Against Paris. Uh, it's a British historian that's also specialized in late 19th century France. Uh, then uh, Merriman's Massacre, a American historian, uh, also specialized in 19th century France. And I started exploring a lot of books. Uh, there is one movie that is a six hour 
experimental movie uh, made by a British uh, 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 film uh, creator, which is a bit too, it's a bit too esoteric leftist for me. Like, I'm like, oof, that's a bit too much. Uh, so I tried to engage with that movie, but it was a bit too much for me. Um, but then we also have, um, we also have uh, actually a couple of comic books. French is a, France is a, a a country that generates a lot of comics. Like we love bande dessinée, we read a lot of mangas, uh, we make a lot of uh, of comics ourselves, uh, and there are a, a few comics that uh, exist. And I I'm a big comic book reader, so I also engage through that medium. Uh, so you have uh, Le Cri du Peuple uh, and Les Dames de la Commune that were uh, two uh, really big comic books that I uh, that I read about uh, about it. So mostly this. If it was another topic, I would probably have engaged a lot more with movies because I like watching movies and documentaries and stuff like this. But uh, but yeah, that was the the main way. Um, then it changed a bit also when I started making the game, and that's the thing. I realized that actually the process of making a game is also a good medium for me to do some research, uh, to go even more in depth. And I think that was actually quite interesting. And I started also reading some, you say, or like actual material that were produced during the commune. So as, as we were talking about before, Le Journal Officiel, some correspondence of specific authors or, or politicians at the time. And then I started also to, to get really a better sense and a feel of what was happening at the time and the thoughts of the people that were leaving the event going a bit more in depth. Uh, so those are, are most of the stuff. I'm thinking about something I can't remember. Uh, I, I, I feel like I'm, Maybe it will come back, but I, I thought there was also other types of content that I was reading, but that was mostly it. I think it covers most of it, yeah. So this has led to another question. It always leads to another question. Um, I, I was really interested to hear you say that, so you knew mostly about this event from kind of your interest in politics and from your own political meetings. So this is probably something that you heard about the most for the first time as sort of propaganda. And how did making a game and going through the research process change how you felt about this event and about how political organizations that you've been involved with talk about it? That's a, an interesting uh, point. So the thing is that I knew coming in that I didn't knew much. Uh, and that's the that's the thing that I, when I get, got into it, I knew that something happened, <laughs> that was for sure, uh, that a lot of people died uh, and that was pretty much it. Uh, and that there was, uh, like a, a political intention uh, that had that was surrounded by this sort of, of purity or something like this. Uh, but I knew that I didn't know much and I knew that what I wanted to portray was the actual escalation of tension between those two factions that didn't really cover that much about what was happening in terms of their political ideology. It's more, was more concrete, like what do we do on the ground? Um, so I think it influenced in the, in this, in the sense that I had more sympathy toward the commune side, that's for sure. Uh, in terms of the people, I felt like more um, attracted to better understanding more about their lives and everything. So I think this introduced that kind of bias. But because I came in with acknowledging that I don't know that I don't know anything about it and that I don't really trust what I know about it, I think it's uh, that's the that's the that's the, the the kind of process that I went in, and I realized that well. It's not really that we we were lying to, but what I what it made me reflect is that the myth that was created was more than about what those people did was a bit of a myth about martyrdom, uh, and it, it 
in almost a religious fashion, you could say, because like those people died for the revolution and they were some of the first one and they were massacred and everything. And, but he didn't say a lot about what they actually did or wanted to achieve. Uh, and I think the myth of martyrdom is just, it's, a, it's, it's a myth, but it's still based on the reality. There was brutal war crimes that were committed by the government of Versailles and nobody on the left or on the right contests that. Everyone agrees on, upon it. The only thing that people don't agree on is the numbers. But the numbers range from 10,000 to 30,000 people killed into a span of a few days. So that's enough. <laughs> like it's like it's whether it's the lower end of the of the range or the higher end, it's still brutal war crime. So the so the myth of martyrdom is actually based on a fact. Uh, so that's the that's the case. But I was actually pretty interested in discovering who those people were, what they were thinking about, and it was I just enjoyed that process. On the other side, what was interesting to me was also to, and that's the thing that I like to do and that I like historical games to show me, is also to better understand the motivation of the people who were on the other side. I always have this idea that people always make rational decisions. Uh, their motivations are always based on different things, but I want to understand where those rational decisions come from. Uh, and actually, I understood a lot more about Versailles, about what they were struggling with, the kind of pressure they were under, um, and the fact that it wasn't well that clear, like of course they, there was war crimes. Some people over there were really bad people, or they enabled awful people to do awful things. That's not a question, but you do understand some of the constraints that they were struggling with uh, through that process. And I and that's also why I wanted to make the game because I wanted to challenge also myself about thinking on what was happening on the other side, what was their perspective, what we were trying to achieve, what were their objective, and what basically they had access, what were the tools to, to achieve those goals. And um, I still think that there was no reason to commit those war crimes. I think that's a, that's the stain. Um, there was absolutely nothing that was legitimized it. There was literally nothing. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't necessary. It was pure, like, brutality. With, and this doesn't change. But then you do understand why they collaborated with Prussia, why they maybe were uh, a bit weak on the negotiations, why they were a bit more aggressive military. Like, there is a lot of thought that I understood while doing the research. There was a few things that I still think are unfortunately completely unacceptable. And I think it explains a lot about why the history is not that much covered in high school or until lately. Uh, but yeah, so that was the, the whole thought process. But I think what was important for me was to come in with this assumption, you don't know anything. Go there fresh. You might have an attraction like or a bias toward more sympathy on one side or the other, but you want to understand what happened overall. So that was, yeah, that was the approach. I like it. Uh, you say you're not a historian, but you've got all the instincts. But we're going to come back to that in just a second. Um, first, I, I just want to clear clear the air on this. There is a solo mode for Red Flag yes. Over Paris, but you are not a solo gamer. Yeah. I think that's a that's a, that's a, that's a fair statement to say that I'm not a solo gamer. I'm known for being annoying to solo to people asking for solo modes and everything. Um, and we talked a bit about this. But what's your question? I won't. Uh, I guess I just wanted uh, to clarify. Like, do, you, do did you have any say in the design for the solo for this? And do you recommend it? I've not actually played the solo, so I was just I'm just curious because I know people who listen to this podcast will just want to know that. So I'm just gonna get it yeah. clear it out before we talk about YouTube for the next forever. <laughs> 
So uh, just to be clear, I didn't design the solo uh, the solo mode, obviously, <laughs> not, uh, not that kind of uh, person. Originally, uh, the person that started working on it was Luke Billingsley uh, and then Jason Carr um, uh, to, co to cover and, and finalize it. And Jason Carr is just has this mind of making even me, I think, are great solo bots. Um, uh, and I think that so their, their work together actually came up with what I think is a, is a great solo bot because it, what I like in a solo mode for, uh, for a, a two or multiplayer game is that it doesn't change the experience and what you learn playing the solo bot would still be useful playing a human opponent. And the game does that. Uh, I did have uh, some involvement in making it. Uh, so I had some discussion with Luke and then with Jason around what would be viable strategies for the bot, what they should be aiming for. So really thinking about what should be the, the brain, the thoughts of the, of, or the objectives of the bot, but then how they came to um, realize that objective or deliver on it. I'm not, an, I'm not able to do that. And this is where Luke and, and Jason afterwards uh, really structured this and, and came up with that uh, finalized solo bot. I did test it uh, 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 a bit. Um, and I actually also did test for other solo bots that are released by GMT, like the, the one for um, Twilight Circle, uh, Red Sea, and those stuff. So I, I do test them. But usually when I test them, there is always someone running the solo bot for me, which is which is very stupid. But and it's usually um, someone that I spend a lot of time with that is always there to help me through my design work and, and someone that I really count a lot on called Joe Dewhurst. Um, and and Joe is basically the the guy sitting next to me being my the like my additional brain that manages the solo bot for me so I can interact with it, test it, give my thoughts and 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 opinion and everything and 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 help refine it if I can. But the person running the solo bot is is never me. There is always someone next to me, uh, which is which is the defies the purpose of a solo bot. I understand that. <laughs> then again, yes, the amazing invention of two player solo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh man. So um, I, I am really curious to try this. Um, but <clears throat> for now, I want to talk about your interest in history and how else it plays out in your gaming life. So you've got a YouTube channel. It's called uh, Homo Ludens, and you named it for Heisinger's book, I'm assuming. Yes. Uh, yeah. So that was based. Yeah. How did that get started? So how did it get started? Um, it was interestingly around the same time that I decided to make a, a channel is the same time around when I decided to start designing a game. And usually the thing is that when I really get into something, I really struggle to stay a passive consumer. Um, and it, it happened to me through my whole life. Uh, when I was a teenager, I really got into music, um, listening a lot of music, but I couldn't only listen. So I started, uh, I found a radio station and I started uh, being a radio DJ over there and going up and up and ending up having my own show. And I've done a lot of radio shows when I was uh, in high, in uh, university and stuff like this. Started making music myself uh, and doing all of that. And then it was the same thing when I got into beer. I got really obsessed with beer. I drank a lot of it, but then I was like, I need more. I need to understand how beer is done. And I started brewing. I set up a microbrewery at my office and I wanted people to engage with it. So I always have this thing at some point where I get really obsessed with something. I need to engage with it myself. And I always have that, that wish to share with people uh, what I think is interesting about that thing. Um, and in my late 20s, I really got into historical uh, board games. And after a few years of playing a lot of them uh, and being becoming obsessed with them, I started thinking, well, I, I want to share that passion uh, with, with people that I um, 
that I think would be interested in. So my target audience was my brother, like the, the archetype was my older brother. So people who are interested in history and interested in board games and to show them there is this amazing niche of board gaming that is actually historical board games and you need to know about it because it's so cool and that's the thing that's why i i started this um uh this channel because i thought that historical board games touch upon a lot of interest i had which is how do you interact with history uh and thinking about the medium how do you learn uh, was also something that I was interested in, how games can shape, as any cultural object, our perception of history. Uh, so I really thought about it like a, as a, like really fully as an object, and I really wanted to engage with it. And the more I did those, uh, the more I thought about it, and the more I did content, and the more new questions came up into my mind about what are the ethics of making a game about uh, an event that portrays um, war crimes, uh, what is the responsibility of the designer, what is the responsibility of the player, what happens because we're touching upon something that is extremely sensitive, history is very sensitive, so, and I started, yeah, and it grew up from there, um, and, and and now, yeah, it's a few years in, and I still have this, this show, and I feel like a lot of ways, making games and making content about games are two sides of the, of the same coin. Oh, that's interesting, so you started making youtube videos at the same time roughly that you became a designer yeah it's a more or less an accident i think those two <laughs> things happen because there is another event that happened in my life that made those two things possible is i changed jobs and i changed um uh, countries so i used to be working in uh, um, consulting uh, agencies and advertising agencies in france in paris and it took a lot of my time and energy uh and the I, I could game, but that was pretty much everything I could do. Uh, and then in 2018, I got hired by a big toy company uh, in Denmark and I moved there. And the thing that happened over there is that my life changed a bit. The lifestyle in Denmark is very different than what it was when I lived in Paris. And also the company that I started working with had those policies about making sure that employees also had times for themselves and everything and actually had all of a sudden a lot more time and a lot of energy and i was like this is the thing that i'm passionate about and it enabled me so the thing that was the big shift and the fact that those two things happened at the same time just that is it was at that moment where i had the free time to actually being able to deliver on those interests that i had jesus that toy company hiring <laughs> yeah, we, we are we are <laughs> Uh, so I, I do, I was actually going to bring up the toy company, um, because I feel like you're a person who, as your life is currently configured, a lot of it is really devoted to play, but in a really serious way. Um, yeah. you know, play is your job. Um, you are interested in historical gaming, which I mean, as we just started talking about, right? Like there's a certain amount of responsibility and seriousness that you have to bring to that sector of gaming in order to get the most out of it, at least in my opinion. Um, so you know, I, I guess I, I would like you to talk a bit more about how play is surfacing in your life in different ways, given that it's what you work on, it's your hobby, um, it's your side gig. You know, is there such a thing as too much play or is it, are you making it work? So, yeah, I think it's really interesting because what you're saying, because I, I do think that there is this, and we talked a bit also about it before we started recording about how people perceive play. And also one of the things that changed in the fact that my lifestyle changed when I got into that company, uh, and I'm not allowed to say the name of the company for, for corporate communication reasons, but the thing that changed is 
also the time that I had, but also the perception that I had of play, because in that company, play is serious, because play, of, first of all, is a source of income, but, but also the culture of the company is that play is a beautiful thing. And it's a thing that uh, kids can learn a lot from, kids and adults, uh, that it's a beautiful tool, uh, that is something that is everywhere. And it actually, when you think about it, um, is in a lot of different places in our culture, uh, and is a very powerful and useful tool. And a lot of say, you could say, if you look, for example, at in the US, uh, your process to elect uh, a president of the United States, it is a game. Like you, you have you have the, those number of voters and everything, and you have to reach that specific number of points and everything. And in a lot of ways, games is there, are everywhere. It's just that, or at least the some aspects of gaming are in a lot of part of our culture, they are everywhere. And just the fact that, um, some of it is purely non-productive and purely for fun and in a, in a way doesn't count, creates a safe space to actually engage with a lot of really interesting things and makes it a powerful tool. The gamification is everywhere. It's just that there is the purity of the pure game that has no consequence that makes it something special, uh, either to learn or spend a good time with people that you love uh, or engage with history. And that's the, that's the thing. But I think the fact that I, yeah, I started working for that company helped me a lot uh, on that. And the fact that I saw value in understanding history through the gamings that I had, actually, I, it made me realize that game was more prevalent in our society than what I expected, uh, uh, first of all. So, but then I also thought it was a great tool and something that I wanted to explore more. And I think that people should be more interested in um, overall. Yeah. <laughs> so um, with uh, with Homoludens, um I know that you do a mix of playthroughs and interviews. Uh, what, what does it take for you to decide to cover something on your channel? Like, do you have a set of mental criteria that you're using to determine what you want to talk about? Uh, are you limiting yourself to history? You know, like how much of a, a specific program do you have in mind? It, it, it's really through vibe. <laughs> like I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think too much about it. Each time I try, and that's the thing, I have those phases. Uh, I always have this moment where I'm like, going to get a schedule. I've got my editorial line. This is who I got to talk to. Those are the things. And sometimes I have this phase where I'm really super structured. I have a timeline. I have an Excel sheet and everything. And it's really the two sides of me. There is a part of me that is really analytical, very structured. It's like, got to get shit done. You've got to structure your thing and you've got to have a strong doctrine and you're going to do it. And then I have this, I have this plan. And then there is the other thread that comes in. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> we'll see about that. <laughs> it's like, and then it goes with the flow. And then there is a rough plan. And I think it's more what I, and I think those two things, the, the fact that I go with the flow and the fact that I structure, they all, they both come from the same interest that I have. At the core, there are topics that I want to address. There are people I want to speak to. There are games that I want to cover. It's just that there is two sides of me, one who wants it to be very structured, the other that goes with the flow, but they have the same objective, those two threads, you could say. Um, and so it's it's hard for me to have a plan. And also be, just because it's a hobby, I do it on the side. Uh, there is a lot of things that come, come in, like my personal life, my work life, uh, and those comes first more, more than YouTube. Uh, I don't monetize anything on YouTube, so I don't get an income. It's pure pleasure, and I don't want to monetize it or get sponsored or anything. Uh, so th this also comes in. And then there is, on the other side, the people that I invite. Um, most of those people are not professionals, or when they are, they are semi-professionals. They also have a work next to their 
um, their design works or everything. So you have to play around with this. So it's always find it always a bit hard or unrealistic to have a structured plan. But overall, the thing that will make me want to talk about a game is um, two things. Either I enjoy a lot playing it. And even if I think it's stupid, it's doing poor history and everything, sometimes there are just games that are just good. And I, and I, and I cannot help myself. Uh, but it's, if it's problematic, I would think about, do I want to showcase them on the channel? We always have this discussion. If it's not too problematic, I'll probably go for it on a, on a, on a, on a whim or something like this. But overall, what I want to address is usually what I want to use the channel for is to explore difficult uh, discussions, not difficult because they are painful, but because difficult, because sometimes they're hard to wrap your head around. Um, and usually that's the thing that are gonna decide me about, I wanna cover this game because it's showing something different, showing a different aspect. It's showing the how historical gaming can be different from what most of the community is thinking about. Because the community I come from is war games and they're very narrowed on war games, is military history and everything. And what I got interested in war game is that I got interested in it because they were historical games. The fact that it's only military history, I actually find quite dull. I want it to be more broader than that. Uh, so I think we should open and welcome the fact that you can have very operational warfare, but you can also have more political stuff about how do you start a war? How do you end the war? Um, what happens when there isn't a war, <laughs> like, like political tension, economical tension and everything. And so, so yeah, that, that's the thing. So, or games pushing the boundaries that would interest me that definitely showing different angles showing different perspective on history or discussions around what it means to make a game what it means to engage with a game uh ethical discussions um uh, the evolution of representation or how does uh, the games reflect the the state of historiography or more of popular culture because it's probably closer to popular culture than actual advanced historiography in academia there's a bigger delay i would say uh, and those topics are usually the thing that are going to drive me and then there are just also designers that i love spending time with and that's also a thing that is going to have a big influence and that's also the people so volko is often on the show because even if Sometimes we disagree about stuff and everything. I still, I still have a lot of sympathy for the person. I love his games and I, I love the guy. And so I want to have him on the show. Mark Herman, I like arguing with him a lot, and 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 and, and like, and we like pushing each other and pushing our buttons and everything. And those are the things that are factors that are there. Um, and it's yeah. So that would also have a, an impact. How do I feel about the people that I invite? So it's. Yeah, it's sometimes I try to be structured, but in the end, I have a general intent of what I want to do with the show. But the way it happens is is more organic. Yeah, it's funny because as you describe, it sounds actually quite a bit like me. The reason I do my podcast in seasons is so that I can plan some of it and then comfortably yeah. kind of fill in some more episodes without getting like stuck if that makes sense like i never want to be yeah. desperate for the next episode but i also want a little bit of freedom in my planning so <laughs> um, I, I feel and, the same yeah and yeah and like you know on, on my own channel like i mean i'll cover whatever solo game i like you know if i feel like it's worth making a video about just because it's fun i will absolutely do that but typically if it's a game i want to really talk about like the thing for the podcast for me is do i want to talk to someone about this for an hour mm. and if i don't it's not going on the podcast. <laughs> but that's a great rule. Like it, it should be rule number one, I think. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm actually sad for people who have to make content. Like I, I would hate to do this, like uh, to have that constraint to have to talk to someone that you don't really like about something that you're not that interested in. It's yeah, that's awful, awful. It sounds, yeah. I wouldn't yeah. want to do that. <laughs> 
I think the pull of historical gaming for me too is that it gives you, uh, and, and you know, operational war games are interesting, but I think I'm with you on, I like to think about historical gaming more broadly because I yeah. want my games to give me something to talk about. I want my games to give me something to think about. I want my games to send me off to read a book or watch a documentary because I also enjoy that kind of multimedia. Like, let me learn everything about this topic kind of experience. And there is no other part of our hobby that can do it like a good historical game, at least not for me. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's uh, a lot of the most thought-provoking games I played are in that part of the hobby, uh, like most of them. I'm not saying that they are not interesting games that happen in the, the, the rest of the hobby that is a bit more accessible to the greater public and everything, but I think historical gaming is usually the most yeah thought-provoking experience that I, that I felt. The, the, to be clear, I, I do love some operational board games. I play Hex Encounters and stuff like this. It's just that I don't want the hobby to be only that. I think it's great that we're opening up and seeing it broadly to other stuff. Uh, but yeah, I agree with you on that, definitely. Yeah, and I think, you know, speaking of variety, I, I also think the games give us another way to consume history. Like, I love to read books. If I had to give up games or books, it would not be a question. I would keep the books. Like, no, not even, I wouldn't think. Um, but... I obviously I love board games. I have a whole channel about them. Uh, and, and also, um, you know, I, I feel like they are a different way to approach historical problems because you have to be really deliberate about what goes in that game, what you choose to model, what you're asking players to do. Um, do you find also that, you know, engaging with historical board games specifically makes you think about historical questions differently than if you just read the book? I think so. Yeah. Because um, then again, I, I'm saying this and it's, it, my answer is to be taken with a grain of salt because I've never written a history book. So that's, uh, so I cannot really compare the, the two experiences, but I, I feel like by nature, you're going to ask yourself very different questions. Uh, for example, someone making a book about uh, the history of the Paris Commune, well, the decision that they have to make is which important they give to each source, uh, why this is important, why it's not, and how do you build the narrative in your book? So where you're going to highlight, um, maybe not keep uh, in, in, in your storyline, how you're going to structure that storyline, what are the characters that you're going to show or the biggest event that you're going to focus on and everything. But basically, this is what you're doing. There is a layer that you're thinking about is how is the reader going to interact with my book? Because they are going to pick up the book and reading from beginning to end or speak a specific section and everything. But they are not going to have an active engagement with the object of the book. And it's the same for the movie or watching the movie or watching your documentary. The fact that they are sitting down, laying over, like doesn't really change much. Um, in the game, I think there is an additional question, which is, what am I asking the player to do? Uh, what does it mean? What is it representing? And is it fair to ask them to do those decisions? And fair is in the sense that um, what kind of experience that I want to offer them? Uh, is it really useful to ask them to do this? And what does it mean? Because in a lot of ways, I feel like uh, historical games or a form of role play. And you're thinking about, okay, what role am I giving the player in that history? Um, and and was that person or that, that faction or those group of people that they are role playing really had that kind of power, really had that form of agency, really knew about this, really did that for that reason, what kind of dynamic I'm offering. And I think this is where the challenges come and you have to balance what is your intent and the ethics of it, but also the fact that you want to offer a ludic experience or something that is engaging as a game and finding that balance between the history, the experience and 
um, what the experience is saying about the history, but also making sure that the game is engaging um, is, is another layer of complexity, which I think is, uh, is uh, quite hard. It constrains you in simplifying the history. Like you cannot, because at some point, like you, you need to narrow down what you're doing and maybe bring theme where you can. And that's the, that's the thing. And the th that's another challenge. How do you simplify uh, complex historical events? What do you decide to uh, put under the rug or not represent and everything? That's also another challenge, which I think is, is different. So I agree with you that you will not replace a really good and well-documented book to understand the history, but in a sense, the fact that you're asking a player to engage with an historical model, something like this, gives you a like a heuristic experience that you understand through learning and you can be put in the position of the person that had to make some of the decisions to the group. And I feel that in a lot of ways, sometimes it makes those decisions more understandable because there is, for me, two things, understanding, knowing what happened and understanding why. And I think that knowing what happened, books are way better and you cannot hardly beat that, but understanding why those things happen, I think this is where games have a role to play and where they are a powerful medium because they can bring this. Oh, I think it's a really good way to put that. That's nice. I'm filing that in my head. Uh, so the other, I want to kind of pull at something you said earlier in our conversation, which you, you mentioned um, covering problematic games. And I, I always think that's an interesting word. And like, I'm just interested in your answer because I struggle with this too. Like, what is the difference between problematic, but it's worth giving it some historical criticism and paying attention to it and problematic, I'm not going to give it any air on my channel. Like, how do you make that decision, especially given how difficult it is to talk about like problematic things right now, socially in, in internet culture? Yeah, yeah. So th there is two layers to it is there is what I think and feel. And then, uh, and then there is outside how I expect people to think or feel about the fact that I'm, and I think those are usually two very different things. Um, Usually I like to engage in, in stuff, but then I would do it on my private time. I have to be careful about the fact that even if I have a very small audience, it's still hundreds of people that we watch a video. I don't know each and every one of them. And I have to think about what I'm doing. So I have to be a bit careful about this. Um, so what I would do in private and what I would do uh, on the channel is always going to be a bit different. I think a good example of that is, for example, there is a game that I played a while ago and I, I want to play again and organize a gameplay of it. It's called After Pablo. Uh, I don't know if you know about this game. It's a game about, yeah. so it, it happens right after Pablo Escobar uh, gets killed and you're actually playing different cartels and you're trying to reinstate the cocaine trade to North, uh, North America. Awful topic, disgusting, highly problematic, amazing game. Uh, and that's the <laughs> problem. And it's like, well, it's a really interesting game. There is a lot of interesting things that it says about how do you, like what power means for those um, uh, non-political or, or marginal organization. Uh, the, the, and I think it's really interesting in that way, the kind of dynamic that it has. Uh, it is in very poor taste, but at the same way, it is pretty well done. Um, but I would, I don't think I would ever show this game on my channel. Like I would not say that I don't know this game and I never played it. I wouldn't lie about it. Yes, I engage with it. And I think that it has some interesting elements to it, but I, I would feel a bit uneasy to, to cover it on my show for, because I think there is a lot of things that are problematic with it. So this is where I think that there is maybe those things where I'm, I'm trying to, to figure out. And, and so that's, that, that's the first thing. And then I'm also trying to think about, and it's the same when I do a game is, is me doing this video 
um, am I doing this video because I, I'm not sure that someone else will do it. So I have to do it because I think it needs to be done. And I'm the one thinking about it to so have a responsibility to do it. And I think there is also this thing. So for example, when, when, we, when I did the panel on civilian victimization uh, and how designers uh, should think about it and, and how to represent or not represent it, I was really thinking, well, I don't really see anyone uh, necessarily uh, on, on right now thinking about this and having the ability of bringing so many designers that cover those topics in their game and having them talk together in an environment where they felt that they were not going to be judged but we can address together really difficult questions about those topic um so this is usually what also is going to be driving me is what can i do um that uh, that would be useful for 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 the community that um that like this sense of yeah uh, not that i that i that, my perspective is unique, but I have the platform and I have the, the means and what can I do that that, that could help uh, in that sense. So this is really, really what's gonna be uh, driving me. And of course, sometimes I do stuff just for fun, uh, but, that's, uh, but that's also a, a, a different story. But yeah, and I'm still always trying to think how useful is it going to be to, to discuss this topic and address it and everything. Um, and it was another example of this is I was very happy to have Harold Buchanan on the channel uh, when um, Flashpoint Sexy was released to actually do a teach and play because it was showing the game, but also more specifically because I wanted to say at the beginning of that um, uh, session with Harold to talk about the, the age old question, what is a war game that I found a very stupid question in most of the time. I think it's an interesting topic, it can be, but the way it is discussed online, I find extremely infuriating. <laughs> and I was like, well, that was also a great opportunity. So always think about those things that, what can we talk about um, when I'm portraying about that game and, and what topics I can push and I can use my platform to actually drive some of the conversation in the direction that I think is interesting. Yeah, I, I like that approach to thinking about like, what is actually interesting or useful you know, just, I hate this and it shouldn't exist. It's not interesting or useful to say yeah. a lot of the time, but can I have a deeper conversation about this? I mean, anybody who designs, I think a historical game, even if it's just a game, opens themselves up to a conversation about what they were trying to say. I mean, it's no different from an author writing a book and somebody citing the book and quoting the author. Um, yeah. You know, um, if, if there's something to talk about that's actually going to get us somewhere interesting conversationally, then that's what I'm looking for as well. Um, but so you've mentioned that video games too, you consider part of this, this larger conversation. So like when you think of gaming, do you think of like, and, you know, we talked about defining war games as well, right? Like to what extent should we all be siloed in terms of how we talk and think about, about games? Or do you see it all as one big um, community? So I see it as a... <laughs> as a pretty big community, but there are still some significant differences between tabletop games and video games. Um, and I think there are material differences, but there is also a difference in terms of nature. And I think in terms of nature is that when you play a video game, you don't have to read the rules um, and the rules are externalized. Uh, and that means that your engagement with the object is superficial. You're only engaging with your inputs and you see what is the output and you learn from them. In a lot of ways, you're, uh, the game is learning the rules um, <laughs> in some way when you're playing a video game. Like when you're, when you're for example, when you become a competitive uh, Street Fighter 2 player, well, 
what you actually do to become a competitive player. You can play the game without understanding it. It's instant. But if you want to become a competitive player, you learn the rules. You understand how is the hitbox, uh, at which frequency you can give your uh, impact and everything, what kind of damage it can give. And you learn the rules to become competitive, but you don't have to. And in a way, it's a very different experience. When you're playing a board game, the game doesn't exist if it doesn't exist in your mind, which is already something that is radically different. Like the rules are here, and that's very different. The game is here, actually. And I think this is by nature different. But still, the output is to take time to interact alone or with friends in a in a playful way, um, uh, something that doesn't necessarily have real life consequences to engage uh, with an object that is providing fun. Uh, so that's the idea. So in that sense, it's it's generally the same the same thing. And then there is a difference in terms of material is that board games are a narrower niche. Uh, video games is a massive industry uh, that is incomparable. It's more is comparable to cinema, probably even bigger. Whereas uh, I would say that probably board games is, is even smaller than publishing. So it's a very small cultural niche. So in that sense, materially, it's also very different. Um, in, and then the production is going to be radically different. You're going to have way more games, video games that are being released than, than, than board games. So of course, there is a bit this difference. But I still think that it's still the same kind of activity in a way. Um, and when I think about history, I think in gaming, it's interesting to think about it in, in that larger scope. I don't engage with video game as much as I engage with board games, but we just started something um, uh, with, a, with a couple of guests exploring the depiction of Vikings in gaming. Uh, and we're taking the focus on, on, on board games. But one of the guests is actually someone whose specialty is actually to, to do some streams where he play video games. Uh, and he talks about how history is depicted in those video games. And that's something, that's a person that I really wanted to have on because I think that the, I wanted to broaden that scope, scope of uh, what is a game and, and, and leverage his perspective from, from a video game sense. So I think it's, yeah, there is a connection, but there is still some significant differences, but uh, I think there is one big family of gaming. Yeah, I might go steal that guess myself. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, actually, you know, I struggle with also, you know, um, I play a lot of video games and I often want to cover them on my channel, but I, feel hesitant about it because it's like I feel like people come to me for the board games but also I mean it is a solo game it is my channel like, hmm. <laughs> yeah in the end you do what whatever you want so that's the yeah yeah should, but, yeah but you've kind of moved the opposite direction in that you don't play video games very much anymore I feel like you've gone from video gamer to board gamer and not necessarily yes. like back so how did that end up happening and like how how do you feel about that decision so the way it happened is just that I was um, at, a, at there was some point in my life where I realized that most of my time working was spent in front of a screen, in front of a computer. Uh, and then when I had free time and I wanted to blow up some steam, well, my output was to put myself in front of a screen and most often than not in front of a computer. And I was like, well, that's not great. Like at some point I need to find something else. And and I wanted to find um, a different way to, to spend time, but still have fun because I, I like playing things. And I also wanted it to make it possible for me to engage more in, in real life with people. There was a, where I come from in gaming and we're talking about this, like my first moment where I was like, wow, gaming is amazing is I was six years old. I went to a friend's house and he had a Famicom at home. We plugged it in and we played Mario Tennis and it was like amazing. 
But what I thought was amazing was the video game, the medium, but the fact that I was playing with my friends sitting next to me. Um, and I think that for me, uh, for a long time, gaming was uh, Famicom, Super Famicom, and all those things that I grew up with were games that we were actually playing. And I have really good memories of being with some friends, spending like a rainy Sunday afternoon and just being together, screaming at each other and playing together the video game. And the way we engage with it was very different. And then I grew up and video games stayed, but I felt like something got lost. And I, and what I think one of the things that got lost is first of all, well, computers was not only fun anymore, it was also work and it was a big part of it. And that was, that was like work ruined the magic of informatics and computers to me, that was the first thing. But also I realized that I lost my friend sitting next to me. Like when you're playing with a friend, you're playing online and it's cool, but it's not the same. And I felt like, you know, multiplayer in-house, like real life in front of the TV, I missed that. And I think that uh, board game was solving a lot of those things, less time from the screen, uh, in front of the screen, but also more time spending time with people, which was uh, something that was important for me. Uh, in a way, board game is just a medium to drink beers, uh, eat chips, and 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 just have fun with friends in a lot of ways. Nice. So, have you completely quit video gaming, or do you just pick very selectively at this point? So yeah, I'm, that's what we're talking about. I. I didn't really give up on video games. Totally, I play a bit. Um, I almost don't play on the computer anymore, uh, but I, I still have, I have a Nintendo Switch. Um, I like it a lot. Uh, and and I still play some video games. Uh, so recently I've been playing Disco Elysium, which I think is a, an amazing game. And it reminds me of something that I liked when I was younger, which was those um, uh, point and click games, adventure games, uh, but in a, with a theme that talks to me as an adult and everything. Um, I also play, it's so funny, I play a lot of board games type of games uh, on the Switch. Uh, I think Slay the Spire is probably the game that I play the most on the Switch. I absolutely love it. I think it's a great game and in a lot of ways. I want to make games on the board game format that draws inspiration from this. Um, and we play also a lot of Root online. So the uh, the Root video game is actually probably, I think one of the best ways to engage with the game in a lot of ways. Um, it's it's really fun. Uh, so in a way, I, I find ways to to emulate a bit what I feel uh, when I play uh, tabletop games while playing video games. Uh, but yeah, I do I do pick some of them. Uh, I like puzzly types of game like Into the Breach and stuff like this. So I still have this, but yeah, I play a lot less. Fair enough. Fair enough. Do you feel that the video games that you choose to play are as historically engaging as the board games, or is that something that you typically choose to do on tabletop? That's something that I do on tabletop. Uh, and the reason for that is that when I engage with history, I like to force myself to have the rules into my own hand, my own head, because I think that a designer is creating a model of what they think history is. And, and I think that's what I like doing. So I like engaging with that model, understanding where they came from, what 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 was the idea of the designer, what they wanted to portray and everything. And I think the best way to engage with that is is to actually table to play a tabletop. Um, I don't really have, yeah, I don't think I played a lot of, uh, of historical uh, video games. In the past I did, I played some Europa Universalis, which is um, I think a, a quite interesting game. It has a very specific view of history, but that's that's another discussion and you have a podcast about that, so people <laughs> should go and watch that. Uh, and, and, and then uh, I think Total War as a series is also something that I engaged a bit uh, with, quite a bit. 
and then a bit more distantly Assassin's Creed, uh, but more in the way that to show that video games are do an awful job at portraying history. Um, but yeah, I've never been a, a, a being an Assassin's Creed fan, but uh, I followed also a lot of the discussions around history depiction in, in those series of games. Interesting. So um, first of all, I just want to thank you so much for, for being on here, but I want to ask, so we talked about all this historical gaming, right? We'll, we'll go into the easy question. What are you playing for fun right now? What do I play for fun right now? Uh, that's a really good question. I'm looking, uh, I think what I've playing, been playing a lot for fun right now is Brian Boru. Uh, but in a way, I think it does actually a pretty interesting job at showing uh, political dynamics. Uh, so I think it's uh, it's probably unfair. I don't want to say that Brian Boru is not also an, inter an intelligent and interesting game at depicting history, but yeah, Brian Boru. I play a lot of trick-taking games right now um, because I there is someone in my war game club that is really into trick trick-taking um, and the thing is that trick-taking is the first game that I learned to play so I learned to play tarot as a kid and tarot is a big part of our gaming culture in the, the place of France where I come from uh, so I usually yeah, right now I've been playing a lot of trick-taking games for for fun oh, that's awesome also um, I know that Red Flag of Repairs is your first game but do you have any upcoming games that you're willing to talk about yes. with the media yeah, sure. So currently on P500, you can pre-order Jest of Robin Hood, uh, which is um, an iteration on the coin system, uh, but with some significant changes to it, and that uh, transfers the the system into uh, into Nottingham in the 12th century. So your one player is playing uh, Robin Hood and uh, the Merryman, and the other is playing the Sheriff of Nottingham and his henchmen. Um, so this is currently in P500, and the idea of it is to make a family-friendly, accessible introduction. Uh, to the coin game with a twist, uh, and that talks also about the emergence of uh, of modern state in medieval times. Uh, uh, it addresses the topic of uh, yeah insurrection, um, and 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 also the talks a lot about politics actually in a, in a, in in small in some small and 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 light ways, but still a lot of topics that I'm interested in are, are there. Uh, and I think that representing uh, Robin Hood and the Merryman as an insurgency is is already fun in itself and enabled me to talk about a lot of different things that I thought were, were funny to address. Um, and then uh, I'm currently playtesting a game on the beginning of the Franco-Prussian War, um, uh, which is building on the system uh, released by Chacos Games. So Chacos released a, a series of game on Napoleon 1807, 1808, and 1815, and using that system and transferring to another era that had a, a, like some difference uh, in, in operational warfare and everything, we're adapting this to, uh, to the beginning of the Franco-Prussian War. And uh, right now, I'm also working a lot on a game, and I'm mostly in research um, phase. I already started some design notes and everything, but I don't have a prototype yet. But it's really something that I'm focusing a lot on right now, uh, on the Battle of Algiers. So uh, thinking about Algeria, uh, Battle of Algiers, and potentially another game more diplomatic that will come afterwards. But those are the things that I'm thinking about. But I'm also making stupid games. <laughs> That's the thing. I actually just released a prototype uh, called Medieval Snail Monster Hunter, uh, where you're playing a party of adventurers and you're fighting snails. Um, and it comes from this idea that in the in the manuscripts of the medieval era, you always have in the margins uh, 
those those knights fighting snails and i thought what well, what if that was an adventure game and from that stupid idea and discussion that i had with joe dohurst uh, i actually made up a, a stupid little card game inspired from slave the spire and you just move uh you have an adventure you have different encounters you encounter snails and you fight them and they drop loot and you become stronger and stupid stuff like this i don't know if this will ever become a thing or if it would just become a print and play but yeah I, that's also something that i'm that i'm working on right now so I'm just going to say right now, I would 100% play that. Um, <laughs> actually, uh, one of my cloth COVID masks has medieval snails printed on. Um, then it's for it's <laughs> definitely for you. I'm, 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 I'm working on a new version to refine a few things in the systems and everything, but I'm happy to demo it to you at some point um, when I update the TTS module. So yeah, just feel free to ping me on, on Twitter and we can find the time to... Uh, uh, to play uh, to play around with it. It is yes. very dumb, but it's actually pretty funny. So yeah. I, I would 100% play a stupid medieval snails game. <laughs> Sounds great. Good. Good to hear. <laughs> and then uh, for, for people who want to reach out and follow you, where, where can you be found online? So the place where I'm the most active is Twitter. So if you just, uh, look at Fred Serval, you can find me on Twitter quite easily. Uh, I mostly talk about board games there. Sometimes there are some political stuff that come up, but it's usually playful and not very serious uh, on Twitter. Um, so that's, yeah, it's a place where I make a lot of jokes uh, and annoy people well, I like to do. Uh, so that's what I do on Twitter. Um, then I'm very active on BoardGameGeek, so you can send me emails over there. I would be usually pretty responsive and I'm pretty active there. Uh, and then I'm really active on Discord, but that's going to be on a server by server basis. So uh, uh, a server where I'm, I used to be very active, but I'm always there having a look. That's the coin player Discord server, but there are a few Discord server where I have a a playtest Discord server uh, and different things. But yeah, those are the, the places where I'm most active. And then on YouTube, uh, yeah, usually I read all of the comments that I have. I answer to most of them and, uh, and all this. So that's also a, a good place to reach out. Excellent. And of course, I'm going to link all your stuff in the show notes below. Thank you Thanks so much for coming on. Um, those of you who are out there, y'all probably know I can be found anywhere online as Beyond Solitaire, but you should definitely be going to check out Fred Serval's stuff. Um, Thank you, Liz. Yeah, absolutely. So everybody out there, please like, subscribe, comment, ask questions, and most of all, happy gaming.